I should like to call your attention this evening to that uh, great story in the Old Testament in the book of Judges, which we read together at the beginning. It's to be found in the 18th chapter of the book of Judges. Let me read again verses 7 and 28. Then the five men departed and came to Laish, and saw the people that were therein, how they dwelt careless after the manner of the Zidonians, quiet and secure. And there was no magistrate in the land that might put them to shame in anything. And they were far from the Zidonians, and had no business with any men. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Zidon, and they had no business with any men. And it was in the valley that lieth by Beth Rehob, and they built a city and dwelt therein. Now, there are two ultimate tests, I think you'll all agree, that can be applied to any view or teaching concerning life which offers itself to all of us and to the whole world this evening. I say there are two ultimate tests, and they are these. Is the teaching true? Is it true in and of itself? That should always be the first test. That's the first uh, way in which you assess any philosophy or view of life that comes to you and uh, tells you that it can help you and that if you follow it, it will lead to success and to happiness. The first thing is, is it true? Or is there something about it which uh, at once leads you to suspect it? Something inherently and of necessity wrong. That's the first test the test of truth. But there is a second test, and it arises out of the first test. Does it work? Does it succeed? Does it do what it claims to do? And in particular, is it something that helps you when you're in a crisis, when you find yourself in danger and confronted by certain terrible, threatening possibilities? Now, I suggest that putting it on the broadest uh, base possible, we must all agree that those are the two most vital tests. Is the teaching true? And does it prove that it's true? By leading to the results which it has promised. In other words, you start, you see, with this objective test of truth, then you follow with this pragmatic test as to whether or not it works and succeeds. Now, the Bible comes to us. Here it is. It was in this world before any of us were ever born. It's the oldest book in the world. Here it is, confronting everybody who is born into this life. And it confronts us with this challenge. It claims that it alone is the truth and contains the truth. And secondly, it claims that it and it alone succeeds and rarely is able to do for us what it promises to do for us. In other words, the claim of the Bible is that it and it alone is able to stand up to these two fundamental tests that we should all be applying to every view and theory of life that is offering itself to us at this present moment. Well, now, the Bible puts this view of life which it has before us, this claim that uh, this alone is the truth concerning life and men 
and all that appertains to him, and that uh, it alone can enable us to solve the problem of life and death and living and eternity and everything else. It puts all this before us in two main ways. One way is, of course, plain, objective, explicit teaching. There's a great deal of teaching in the Bible. You've got it in your Ten Commandments. You've got it in your Sermon on the Mount. You've got it in the great New Testament epistles, which are nothing but the presentation of clear teaching as to how we should live, what we should do, what we are, and all the rest of it. That's one aspect of its teaching. But it's got another method. And the second method is to convey the teaching through illustrations. And the illustrations, of course, consist partly and mainly of history. That's why you get such a great deal of history in the Bible. It's not put in merely to fill up space, or because it's got a good story, or because people like the dramatic and so on. No, no, the Bible gives us history in order to illustrate its teaching, in order to show us that what it's talking about is not some theoretical philosophy, but it is indeed the most practical thing in the world. It says, now, here are people living life as you were living life. Some went this way, some went that way. Some were right, some were wrong. Well, let's see what happened to them. So it gives you the history and the story of the two types of persons. Thus you find in the Bible, with this didactic teaching, all this great history. Now, many people foolishly dismiss the history. They say, we're not interested in that ancient history. Well, of course, that's just showing their failure to understand the lessons of history. Why don't they say the same about biographies and secular history? But they don't. Well, it's the same thing. History, after all, is just the illustration of views of living and ways of living. Now the Bible then brings its truth to us in those ways. So that here, in these uh, various ways, we find the teaching concerning life, concerning death, and concerning what lies beyond them. All very practical, teaching us to how we are to live in this life, what we are to do, what we are not to do, how we are to estimate everything, how we face, I say, that inevitable end, and how we look even beyond that, into that unknown eternity. Now, as we look at all this, as it's set before us in the Bible, I think you'll all agree with me that one thing stands out very plainly and very clearly. And that is that human nature remains very much the same in spite of the passage of the centuries. You can't read the historical portions of this book without seeing that man is still tonight what he was so many centuries ago, or different in many ways, I know, on the surface. But when you come to look at him as man, what he is, what he thinks, what he likes, what he wants to do, and what he does do, well, you find as you're reading this ancient history that you're reading a typical story about modern men. Now, I throw that out as a challenge. It is something that ought to be obvious to all of us, that man remains fundamental and precisely what he has always been throughout the running centuries. Now, all that is illustrated, I think, very perfectly in this story that we are looking at together tonight. Here it is. It's a simple story. It's full of dramatic movement and intensity, but oh, the profound lessons that are put before us here. 
and which should come to us in the world as it is tonight, in its tension, its crisis, and all its insecurity, and faced as it is with all the terrible and the dread possibilities, I say it's a story that comes to us and just asks us to face through its medium some of the most vital and fundamental principles with regard to life and living and death and eternity. Now, the story is quite simple. Here are the children of Israel, you see. They've been brought into the promised land and they're now supposed to go out and possess their various portions of the land that had been allotted to them. Now, the children of the tribe of Dan had been a little bit negligent in this respect, but now they wake up to the fact that uh, there is certain land that they should be possessing, so they send out their spies. And these men went round, and suddenly they came across this place called uh, uh, Laish. And they were amazed immediately. It was a very good land, a very productive land, an ideal place to live in. But they found that there were people living there, these Zidonians, a portion at any rate of these Zidonians. Here they found people living in a very carefree and careless manner, no fortifications for their cities at all, no magistrates, just they'd gone off on their own, this portion of the Zidonians, they'd left the main body of their people, they'd contracted out as it were, and they'd come across this very pleasing and pleasant portion of land and they had decided to live there. There they were living in this carefree manner, careless and secure as we are told, and feeling that everything was all right. But uh, unfortunately for them, as you remember the story tells us, the spies of the tribe of Dan saw the situation and they hurried back as quickly as they could to tell their company that here was this land uh, waiting to be possessed. They'd got nothing to do but to walk in and it would be theirs. So they only sent 600 men. There was no need to send any more. And you remember the story goes on to tell us how they captured it with extreme ease. They just went there and they destroyed everything. They took the things which Micah had made and the priest which he had and came into Laish unto a people that were at quiet and secure and they smote them with the edge of the sword and burnt the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, deliverer for these Zidonians in other words because it was far from Zidon and they had no business with any men. So suddenly their wonderful pleasant life came to a tragic and a dramatic end. They were destroyed and their city with them. And the land which they had been living in became the possession of the tribe of death. Well, now, that, that's the story. But you see what a lesson it has to teach us. What does it tell us? Well, what's its theme? Well, its theme is this. It is to show us the fallacy of a view of life, which at first seemed to be wonderful, Delightful, indeed ideal, which seemed to offer us everything we could possibly desire, give it us all so easily and so freely. But a view of life which in the end turns out to be utterly and entirely wrong and ends in a tragic failure. That's its message. That's what it's doing in the Bible. It's here as an illustration of that. Of course, I could give you uh, endless other illustrations of the same thing. 
This is one of those views of life that the Bible always warns us against. There's a right way and a wrong way. This is the wrong way. And this is so typical and so characteristic. That's the theme. The way in which we can fondly imagine that all is well and suddenly discover when it's too late that all was wrong. Well now, my dear friends, I needn't waste your time in reminding you and indicating to you as to why I'm directing your attention to this. These are no days in which a man should be uncertain as to his view of life. As these Danites suddenly landed on this town of Laish, there are many things in this world that can suddenly land on us. And the question is, are we prepared for them? Where are we? Oh, I'm not just regaling you with an Old Testament story tonight. I'm calling attention to it, I say, because it's this great message of the Bible everywhere calling us to consider and to think and to face the facts and to know exactly where we are and what we are doing, lest we suddenly, likewise, should be taken unawares and in a last frantic moment realize our utter error when it's too late to do anything about it. Now, you see, this then is a summary of the message of the whole Bible. The Bible is a book that comes to us with warning. Take heed, it says. Stop, consider. The Bible is a book that calls people to think. Isn't you know the sub-stuff that people think it is? Here alone are you really challenged to think. It's a most disturbing book, the Bible. It's people who never read it who think that it's just some fairy tale. It isn't. It's a very disturbing book. If you have eyes to read it and to see it and to know that it's speaking to you and about yourself. And now let's look together then at the story of these Zidonians in order that we may learn this great lesson. In their case, the trouble... It was mainly one of physical security. But of course it involved their view of life, as I'm saying. So the spiritual element came in, and it always does. But naturally I am most anxious to apply it this evening in a spiritual sense. Because here is the whole truth about our life as we live it in this present, this passing world of time. Now then, what accounted for this disaster? Why does this story end on this tragic note? What was the matter with these Zidonians of whom we read here? Well, it doesn't need any special critical acumen to answer that question, surely. There are certain things that are obvious about this view of life. Here's the first. It was an utterly naive and oversimplified view of life. That's the first thing that strikes me about this. Look at these men. What, what is it? Well, here's the term, you see, that keeps on recurring. They were careless. They dwelt careless. Careless and secure. These spies went back and said, When ye go, ye shall come unto a people secure and to a large land. For God hath given it into your hands. A place where there is no want of anything that is in the earth. But the point about them is that they were a careless and a secure people. They dwelt in a manner that was quiet and secure. Now, there is the significant term. What does it mean? Well, one of the translators in one of the versions puts it like this. He translated, translates it as that they were complacently secure. That's the secret. They're complacently secure. What does it mean? Well, it was this. They'd gone off on their own. 
They'd seen this very good land. So they decided to break off from the main body of their own people and to settle there and to live there. In other words, they were breaking with a tradition. And uh, having got there, they decided that they'd live in this way that they desire. No fortifications, no magistrates. Oh, you can be bothered with that sort of thing. Here was everything waiting for you. All you did was to go in, settle down, build your cities, enjoy yourselves, and everything would be all right. And they'd done so. And as you read the story, you feel, don't you, the note of self-confidence, the note of assurance. They were very proud of what they'd done. And, of course, they felt very contemptuous with regard to the other peoples round and about them. There they were building their huge walls round their cities, building their fortifications. What are they wasting their energy for and wasting their time? It's unnecessary. This is the way to live. You don't need all that. That's been the trouble with life, that people have always gone on like that, all each generation repeating what the former had done. Why don't they think, they said, this is the way to live? And so they uh, had settled down. You see, these men uh, had got a kind of magic formula for life. Life, they said, is really quite simple. If you only face it in the right way, there's no need for all this fuss and bother, there's no need for all this teaching, there's no need for all these preparations against an unknown future. Oh, that's all nonsense. Uh, no, no, quite simple. They, they, they've got, I say, this magical formula. Really no problem to solve at all. There was only one thing to do, and do that, and all would be well. And they'd done that. Now, there, there is the picture that is presented by these people. They're making a break with the past. The past and its message seemed to them to be quite unnecessary and quite useless, so they ignore it altogether. They act as if nobody had ever really understood how to live and how to have a happy time until they'd arrived. Everything else done by the people around about them still and in the past was all wrong and was all foolish. Now, here's a very old story, isn't it? But don't you see in this a very perfect portrayal and representation of the view of life that is taken by so many at the present time? They seem to have a magic formula. There's no problem. There's no difficulty. They're not interested in what's been done in the past. They're 20th century people, after all. And the great thing is to break with the past. All these customs, what people have always done. No, no, they say, that's been all wrong. You mustn't waste your time with that. This is the way to live. They're doing something that's never been done before. Everybody else is doing the same old thing that has always been done. They're not going to do that. They, they know. They, 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 they've got an idea. They've got a theory. And they set out and they put it in practice. Everything else seems to be so wrong and so foolish. The world in the past has always had wars. But oh, that's due to these statesmen, these politicians. They're all repeating what's always been done in the past. They're doing what's always been done in life. Now, we must have a complete break with all that. And the thing is quite simple. You've only got to do this and everything's going to be all right. Oversimplification, I say. Naive. They don't seem to recognize that there are any difficulties at all. But everything seems plain sailing. Quite simple. And uh, all you do is to apply your magic formula. 
And all your difficulties will vanish. It's waiting for you. Step in. Take it. There it is. And all will be happy. Now that, I say, is the picture that is presented to us on the very surface here. What's your view of life, my friend? Do you hold this modern view that's so popular that the whole thing is really quite simple? That the problem of personal life is simple. And that the way of solving the international problems is really quite simple. All you've got to do is this. Everything will be all right. Is that it? Is that your view? Here's the first question we are bound to face. Because, you see, the whole message of this book is to say this. That life is not simple. That life indeed is very difficult. Oh, but you say that's depressing. No, it's not depressing. It's being truthful. It's being realistic. Of course, if you just want happiness as these people did, you won't like this sort of thing. They didn't. That's why they were so impatient, you see. With everything that had come down from the past. Oh, no, no, they were not interested. They, they, this is the way to do it. They've got a blueprint. Utopia is available. Here's the blueprint. Enter in. All will be well. And they thought they'd got it. But you know, the Bible makes a great protest against all that. It's a very old book. And as I say, it's got this great history. It shows us that there have always been people who thought like that. But it also shows us the end of such people. In other words, the first principle we lay down is this. That life is not simple. The problem of life is not simple. The problem of individual life and living is not a simple thing. It's the most difficult thing of everything. You may be studying various subjects. You may be an undergraduate. You may be a postgraduate. You may be studying some problem in your work or business or profession. All right. And there are difficulties, I know, and things that can't be understood and problems that often takes a good deal of unraveling and solving. But my dear friend, the greatest problem of all is the problem of yourself. The problem of life. The problem of living. The problem of relationships. These are the problems. And it's not simple. There is no magic formula. Never get that notion. The whole message here is this. That it's not all quite easy and simple. And that you cannot start where everybody else has left off. And that there's something new about life. And that you've got the idea. And all you do is to apply it. The Bible gives the lie direct to all that. And tells us at the very beginning. That any view of life which comes thus to us and says everything will be put right if we only do one thing is not only naive, it's oversimplifying the problem. It hasn't realized the great and the major difficulties. That's the first thing we notice about these people. Life is a profound matter. And all the problem of the world tonight is a very profound problem. Indeed, you see, the message of this book for me to anticipate is this. That this problem that you and I are confronted by is as great as this. That no human being could solve it. The whole human race couldn't solve it. All the learning and the understanding of all the greatest philosophers of all the countries has been inadequate. The problem is so great, it's so profound, that it needed the coming of the Son of God out of heaven into this world to take on human nature in order to deal with it. Here then is a superficial view of life. It's naive. It oversimplifies the problem. But let me look at the second point. You notice also that it's a very unworthy view of life. 
What do I mean? Well, I mean something like this. It's a very selfish view of life. You see what these people did? What they really did was to contract out of life. They left the main body of their fellow Zidonians. And here, you see, they found a land which was very fruitful. Everything waiting for them. All you did was to go in and live on the fat of the land. It was there for you. So they cut themselves right off. You remember it's emphasized that they had no communication. There was no deliverer because it was far from Zidon. And they had no business with any man. They were not interested in that. They were interested only in themselves. And so they cut themselves off and divorced themselves from everybody else. Simply out for themselves and what they could get. Oh, I mustn't stay with these points. But you see, this is a modern parable also, isn't it? This idea of contracting out of life, not being concerned about your responsibilities, but always an eye to the main chance, always thinking of self. Isn't life today becoming more selfish increasingly? I'm old enough to be able to say, yes, it is. I'm old enough to remember a time when there was a community sense and people thought of one another and helped one another. Parents didn't, reg children didn't regard their parents as a nuisance and as a kind of incubus and a burden to be carried. They felt a sense of responsibility for them. They'd received so much for them, they wanted to do something for them. They didn't contract out of it, nor parents from their children. But we're living in a generation which is contracting out of all these human relationships and everybody's out for himself and herself. Well, well, I can't help it. I've got my life to live. That's the argument. And you see it working itself out, you see, in divorce and all the tragedy and the misery and the unhappiness that comes to countless thousands of people. But the argument is, why shouldn't I? It's my life. Why should I consider anybody else? That was the very principle governing these people. Cut themselves off thinking only of themselves and their own well-being and their own happiness and their own pleasure. Nothing else at all. It's an unproductive life. It makes no contribution to the common life of men. It's so utterly self-centered, self-selfish, turned in upon itself. Its horizon begins and ends with itself. What can I get? How can I get the best? That's the principle. That's the kind of motive that is behind it all. And of course, when you come to consider what this self is seeking, you see still more clearly what an inadequate view of life it is. What were they seeking? Well, nothing but uh, ease and security. And the security in order that they might have the ease. That is the principle, that's the guiding motive. They'd exalted happiness, pleasure, to the supreme position. Now the learned philosophers throughout the century have dealt very often with this, you see. It's a sort of hedonism which puts happiness, pleasure, as the supreme goal. And what a man's out for is more and more of this. Well, it's commonly called having a good time, isn't it? This is the great business of life. What can I get out of it? How can I get the maximum pleasure out of it? How can I do the minimum amount of work and get the maximum return for it? Work's a nuisance. We want more leisure. We want more pleasure. Isn't this the mentality of the present world? 
We want a good time. We want a happy time. We want to let ourselves go. Everything else is more or less an encumbrance and a nuisance and an annoyance. That, that, was, that was the motive behind these people. If you lived with the others and if you went on with the old way of living, well, you had to do certain things and you were held responsible for certain things. But here, this is a carefree life. None of that nonsense. You just let yourself go and here's everything for you. You've never had it so good. Here's a land, as it were, flowing with milk and honey and you've got it. There's no need to do anything but take your fill and enjoy it. Pleasure. Pleasure-seeking. Pleasure-enjoying. This was their life. This was what they wanted. This is what they coveted. This was the thing for, for which they'd gone in. What's your motive in life, my friend? What are you out for? What's your view of work? What is life? What are you expecting from it? What do you ask of it? There's no doubt at all today that the world speaking generally and all the nations are back in this position. And proud of it, proud of what it's got. Never had so much of it. Never had so much pleasure. Never had so much money to buy pleasure. Everything is turned in this direction. Oh, there's little talk about great principles. Little talk about making life better and nobler. People are no longer interested in these things. There was a time when they were, they discussed them. They liked listening to addresses and speeches concerning them, but all that's gone. You don't get it in politics even today. It's all on this economic matter. And what's that for? Well, that I may have more money to get more pleasure. Pleasure has become the God. Ease and pleasure and having more and more of it and our fill of it. This is the thing which men and women are seeking. That's why I say that it's such a poor view of life. Not only naive, doesn't only oversimplify the problem, but what it's out for is so base, it's so unworthy, it's so inadequate. But then go on, look at the next thing, and that is the lawlessness that characterizes it. There you've got it in, you've got it in verse 7. The five men departed and came to Laish, and saw the people that were therein, now they dwelt careless. After the manner of the Zidonians, quiet and secure, and there was no magistrate in the land that might put them to shame in anything. No magistrates. Because magistrates, you see, hold you up and pull you up and uh, condemn you and put you to shame. Oh, but they didn't believe in magistrates. No magistrate in the land that might put them to shame in anything. Now, here is an important point. They really didn't believe in law. They really didn't believe in order. Oh, no, they were just angry young men against that past which believes in law and order. No, no, that's not the way to live. This is the way to live. You just do what you feel like doing. You don't need magistrates. That implies that there's a, a code of law, that there's a standard, that there's an ethical moral standard by which life is to be judged and you can be called to book and you can be punished if you fail in certain... But out with it all. It's all wrong. That belongs to the past. That's not the way to live. Get rid of all that. Let people do what they feel like doing. Let them do what they want to do. Let them obey, the, obey their impulses. Of course, there's been all this shibboleth of religion, all this incubus of Christianity, which has kept people down, Puritanism, some of them call it, and it's always against this, and it's always prohibiting this and that, and it's got its taboos. But all that belongs to the infancy of the race. All that is childish. That's nonsense. 
Now, you see, you must make a break with all that. Get right away from it. Have no communications with that. Set up on your own. Walk out of a marriage if you like and do anything you like. And Why shouldn't you? That's the argument. Why shouldn't I? Well, that was how it worked, you see, so long ago. Your modern people are not as modern as they think. It was all done the way back in the time of the judges. There's nothing new under the sun. Men doesn't change at all. People have been doing this periodically uh, throughout the running ages. What is regarded as the height of modernity today is just going right back to this Old Testament incident. This is the view that says that every man is a law unto himself. This is a view that says that you shouldn't undertake any responsibilities at all. If you feel like a change, we'll have it. And you mustn't be pointed at, and you mustn't be called a book because of it. No, no, there is nothing outside men that really is of value, nothing that we should recognize outside ourselves. We are to express ourselves. We've got a personality, we are as we are. Well, then let's live as we are. Let's put it into operation. Every man for himself. Every man doing what he wants to do. And no authority at all, no discipline. Nothing to hold us down, nothing to condemn us. That's the ideal life. And the only thing that is of importance is that we should be allowed to go on doing this. So, you see, let's join the movement that banishes war in order that we can go on living like that. The two things go together. Careless, at ease, feeling quite secure. Just going on in that kind of way, but oh, what an unworthy view of life. Back to the jungle. There was no king in Israel at that time, and they were doing very much the same thing, though they were the people of God. And you see the chaos that it leads to in their case as well as in the case of these Zidonians. It always leads to chaos. And life becomes a muddle, and you don't know where you are. There are no principles governing anything at all. But every man does what he wants to do. We all become animals, and we give rein to our lusts and desires and passions. And why shouldn't we, we say? And we are not going to be condemned by these external authorities, no magistrates. There are many living that sort of life tonight. The world, indeed, has teeming masses of people who are living according to that very philosophy. And as these Zidonians prided themselves on their emancipation, and on their freedom, and on their good idea, their brilliant solution to the problem of life and living. So... The modern man does exactly the same thing. He's proud of his generation, proud of life today, pleased with himself that he's shaken off religion and all this that comes down from the past, the Christian church and all her teaching and all these things that say, wait a moment, stop, think, consider, away with it all. It's pleased with itself. It's achieved emancipation. It's gone off. It's in a pleasant land. Everything that could be desired, it's got it. The world has never been so wonderful as it is tonight. Isn't that it? Well, that's how it was then. And it's still the same this evening. But that leads me to a third thing. And the third thing is that this view of life shows a complete failure to consider and to face certain possible eventualities. Careless. Secure. Yes, there they were, assuming that all would go well. That's why they had no defenses. They wouldn't 
going to bother with that. Defenses, of course not. That's the old mistake. No defenses. Just settle down and enjoy this wonderful life which you've made for yourself. And just go on, assuming that all is well. They never stop to ask certain questions. They never stop to say, well now, all right, this is a wonderful bit of land, and we seem to have everything that could be desired here. But what if, what if, what if uh, somebody else might think the same thing about this bit of land? What if somebody else might covet this and desire? Oh, but they say, but you mustn't think of things like that. That's the old way of thinking. You don't do that. You just do this and people will be so amazed at what you're doing. They'll all say, well, how dull we were. How is it we never saw this before? You'll not only solve your own problem, you'll solve the whole problem of the world. Nobody will ever dream of doing such a thing, do you? They wouldn't consider it. They went on, living at ease and in security, taking everything for granted. All was well. And as they did so, they were ignoring the plain facts of history. There wasn't as much history then as there is now, but there was enough then to teach certain plain lessons. They were ignoring the plain facts about human nature. They wouldn't face them. They wouldn't consider them. What are these facts? Well, that man is selfish. That men, all men by nature are lawless. That all people are ruthless. They wouldn't face the facts that there were people in the world like these Danites, who when they see the same bit of land say, ah, just what we wanted, and then go back and gather their 600 men. En route, they come across this poor man, Micah, who was employing a priest for himself and his family, and they take hold of him as well, commandeer him, and go on, but they shouldn't do that. You say, but I know they shouldn't do it, but they do that sort of thing. That's the kind of thing the Zidonians never faced. They didn't stop and consider that people are like that. And that because people are like that, they're liable at any moment to come along and try and grab this thing and take it from it. They never looked at it at all. They wouldn't face it. And isn't it still the same tonight? There is still this same fatal belief in the essential goodness of man. That's why people think that they can solve their problems still. That is why they hold on frantically to the things that have been tried so long and proved to be an utter failure. There is still a belief in this modern world in the essential goodness of men. There is still this fatal belief in the essential value of a moral gesture. You see, there were people who really did believe that if you only went and talked nicely to Hitler that he'd agree with you. The mistake was to oppose him. The thing to do with a man like Hitler is to go and speak nicely to him. And he'll be so amazed at your moral gesture. He'll banish all his armies and his navies and he'll say, I'm sorry, I hadn't thought of that before. They really believe that. And they still believe that kind of thing. They believe that on the international level. There are people who believe that the whole problem of the world tonight can be solved so easily. We've only got to make a moral gesture. And the whole world will stand back and say, well, fancy nobody ever thought of that before. We must all do the same thing. And there'll be never another war, and we'll all live happily ever afterwards. What's it due to? Oh, it's just due to a complete failure to understand the truth about human nature. It's just this tragic failure to realize that man is a sinner. And a selfish sinner. And a brutal sinner. And a ruthless sinner. When he wants a thing, he'll get it, as these 
Danites did. He doesn't care what he stops at. If he wants a thing, he's out for it and he's going to get it. He may have to trample on people like this poor Micah, which means innocent children who've never done any wrong. He'll trample on their love. He'll break up their security in life. He'll trample on their little love in order to get what he wants. They won't face that. So they believe, you see, that it's just a matter of going on, being nice and good and pleasant. Having no magistrates, no law and order, you don't need it. Trust the people, trust their instincts. And this radical failure, I say, to face these fundamental truths concerning men and concerning the whole world. But it's equally true individually. My dear friend, let me ask you a few simple, straight questions. Have you ever faced your own inherent sinfulness? Why are we all as we are by nature? Why this selfish view of life? Why this longing for mere ease and gratification of ideas? What's the matter with us? Have you ever thought of that? Can't you see that the world is as it is tonight because every one of us individually is as we are. Each one of us is. Man or woman, it doesn't matter. See, don't think in nations. Think in terms of yourself. Nations are but the individual writ large. And nations have desire and will stop at nothing and are ruthless because this principle of evil and of sin is in them. It's in every one of us by nature. The world is as it is tonight because men and women won't face the fact of their own sinfulness. They won't face the fact of death. They only think of the present moment, the hour of enjoyment, things as they are now, as these people were there, Quiet and secure, living a life of ease, everything going well, marvelous. Solved the problem. Fools still trying in the old way. Living for the moment, and it seemed so marvelous. But they hadn't looked ahead, they hadn't looked to, the, to an end that was coming. They'd never faced the fact of death. And still less do they face the fact of God and the fact of judgment. The whole world today is contracting out of life. Turning its back upon God and persuading itself there isn't a God. Because nothing's happened, they're sure there isn't a God. They've just turned their backs. They've broken off connection, exactly like these Zidonians have done. And thus I say, they are living for the present hour. My dear friend, do you consider consequences? Do you consider possible eventualities? Do you ever stop to look ahead and to look forward? It was because they failed to do so and refused to do so and prided themselves on their refusal to do so that these people ended in such a tragic manner, which brings me to my last word. You see the result of it all. There it is. The wonderful life. Couldn't be better. Never had it so good. The world is perfect. Never has there been such advance. Look at it. Everything we could desire, and all for nothing and so easily. What a life. How wonderful. But suddenly there's an eye. And the 600 Danites are approaching. And they are well armed and they're ready. And suddenly these careless, defenseless people are overwhelmed and are slaughtered. And their city is burned to the ground. No appeals that they made to them could uh, avail them anything. No pleading for quarter. No, no, it wasn't listened to. But not only that, you see, there was nothing that they could do. They couldn't send for their... Uh, 
Fellow Zidonians, they were too far away from them. They'd gone off, they'd contracted out, and they'd maintained no lines of communication at all. In the moment of their agony, their crisis, when the enemy comes, they're left to themselves. There's nothing they can do. There's no one to turn to. There was no deliverer. They were utterly cut off in all directions because it was far from Zidon, and they had no business with any man. The self-contained life, the isolated life, this life that goes out on its own, no business with any man, suddenly finds the absence and the loss of all this. It's bereft of everything. And it's left alone in its agony and its crisis. And there's no one to cry to. And there is nothing to do. And suddenly, they found that all that they believed and all they'd stood for proved to be completely and entirely wrong. And they were overwhelmed with disaster. Where's our world this evening? Never been so prosperous. Never appeared to be so wonderful. How far is it, I wonder, from this position? But my dear friend, where are you? I start with you. It's the individual that matters. Let's face the facts. Let's learn the lessons which are taught us here so plainly in the case of these Zidonians. What's the first thing we've got to do? Well, it's to face the facts. Look at life as it is. Get rid of your fairy tales, your idealistic views. Get rid of this oversimplification, this idealization. Face the facts of life. Why? I'm almost tempted to say that if you don't take the truth as it's given in the Bible, read your own modern novels, these psychological novels of yours, and see what human nature really is. It's there. Why not face it? And see that this same thing is in you. It's in all of us by nature. And then realize this. That we are not fit to decide how to live. We are not competent to do so. Don't cut yourself off from the past. The world's a very old place. Human nature's a very old thing. Start, I say, not by turning your back upon the past and saying, I'm 20th century. I'm 1961. I know. I say you just do this. It's been said so often before, and it's always led to disaster. Learn the lessons of history and of the past. And that's the great lesson. That it is not man that decides how to live that is not competent to do so. That you don't make a world for yourself. You find yourself in a world. And it is a world that has been made by God. It's a world which is governed by certain principles. It's a world in which every one of us is responsible to God. There is the supreme magistrate. And you can't get away from him. You can't evade him. You can't contract out of life. There is nowhere that you can go to but that God will be there with you. Remember the psalmist in one, Psalm 139. He tries it out. Goes up to heaven. God's there. He makes his bed in hell. God's there. Doesn't matter where he goes. God is everywhere. He knows my down-sitting and my uprising, says this man. I can't flee out of thy presence. And you can't. These people, you see, had no magistrates. They thought that you could do away with the law, but you can't. 
This is God's world and God is the lawgiver. And God has made everything and God is still controlling it. And God holds every one of us responsible. And every one of us will have to appear before him. We shall discover that there is a magistrate. He calls upon us to live according to his laws. And he tells us plainly that if we don't, we'll suffer. We'll suffer in this life. We'll suffer in the next life. He condemns our view of life. Our selfish, self-centered, pleasure-loving, easy, irresponsible, lawless life. He not only condemns it, he hates it. He hates the evil, the sin, the vileness, the rottenness that has come into human nature. He never put it there. It came in as the result of man's disobedience and rebellion. And God hates it. And he's going to punish it. He's punishing it at this moment. The state of the world is, I believe, a part of the punishment. The world is in terrible danger and we're all in danger individually. For we all, I say, must need die and stand before God in the judgment. And there you are. What have you got to say for yourself? You see, it's got to come. You can't help it. These Danites are on the way. What are they? Well, old age, illness, accident, death. They've arrived at last. And not only death, but the judgment of God. What do you do? Here are his demands. Ten commandments, moral law, the holiness and the righteousness of God. Man made in the image of God and meant to live to the glory of God. That's the test. Where are you? There are the demands, the laws attacking you. What you say? What's your reply? You've got nothing to say. Well, who can help you? Turn to humanity. It can't. It's the same as yourself. Turn to your men who are offering you an easy way out. What have they got? Nothing. Same position. There's no one to help you. You can't help yourself. You can't undo your past. You can't do anything in the present. You've got no hope. Like these people, you find yourself with no deliverer. You've cut yourself off from everything that could help you. You are going to make your new world, doing it according to your idea. And you're left to yourself. And you find you've got nothing. No deliverer. No, my dear friends, that's the thing the Bible calls upon us to consider. And then, thank God, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't leave us there. You see, it tells us, you trust yourself and your own ideas. That's where you lend. Utter helplessness and no deliverer. But, it goes on to say, there is a deliverer. Even at that moment of desperation. Even in that final agony. When the enemies have arrived... And when you're facing utter condemnation, there is a deliverer. When other helpers fail and comforts flee as they will. Help of the helpless. Oh, abide with me. Here's its message. There's only one truth. It's the truth of God. The truth that tells us that we're all sinners and condemned and worthy of the condemnation, but that God, in his infinite grace and kindness and mercy and compassion, has sent one to deliver us, his only begotten beloved Son, who delivers by laying down his life for us, by taking our sins upon him and bearing all the guilt and the shame and the punishment of it all, and who thus delivers us from the last enemy of all, even death itself. For reconciling us to God, he makes us God's children.
assures us of a glory in resurrection and a new life which we begin in this world and which we go on to live forever and forever in his glorious presence. Oh, let us learn the lesson of these foolish, tragic Zidonians. They'd cut themselves off from the Zidonians. They had no business with any men, and they were overwhelmed with tragedy and calamity because they'd cut themselves off from every means of deliverance and escape. What have we got to do? It's this. Get into contact with the only one who can deliver you, the Son of God, your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Get into contact with him. You've turned your back upon him, many of you, until this night. Turn round. Get into contact with him. There's still time. The enemies haven't arrived yet. Get into contact with the deliverer. He's a strong deliverer. He's conquered your enemies already. Get into contact with him. Not only get into contact with him, keep in contact with him. Maintain the lines of communication. Read your Bible. Pray regularly. Come to the house of God to sing his praises and to get to know more about him. He alone can deliver you. Nobody else can. Nothing else can. The day of agony and crisis must come. We don't know how. We don't know when. We never know when in the world as it is tonight. Don't waste any time. Get into contact with him. He delivers. Get into touch. Maintain the contact. That's the truth. It is the only truth. It's the truth of God. This is the New Testament message as well as the Old. It's the whole biblical message. It's the truth of God, not of man. And it works. Here you'll find the records of how it does work. And thank God the records of how it does work are not confined even to the Bible, even to the New Testament. Read the whole history of the Christian church. Read about the early martyrs. How gladly they died knowing where they were going. These are the men who conquered life and mastered it throughout the running centuries. Read the story. Here it is. It's not only true, but it works. It's real. You don't cry to him in vain, wherever you are and whatever happening to you. You have but to cry unto him and he hears you. Abide with me. Fast falls the even tide. The darkness deepens, and doesn't it? Lord, with me abide, believe on him. Get into that intimate relationship with him and stay there. Abide in him and ask him to abide with you and come what may. You will never be put to shame. You will never know the tragic end of these Zidonians. Your deliverer will be always with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. May God in his infinite grace, through this old story. Open our eyes to the vital importance of facing the facts, the inevitable, unavoidable facts, and of making sure that we are safely in the hands of the almighty Deliverer. Amen.